Welcome to episode 148 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm Kate Rowland, a family physician and associate professor at Rush University. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. We are recording on February 13th, which is the day before one of the best days of the whole year. It's a day where all over America, people are going to hear those four sweetest words ever, the things that people really long to hear, pitchers and catchers report. This is also the day, at least according to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me this weekend, where February 14th, you take your spouse to um, uh, dinner, and February 13th, you take the other love of your life to dinner, you know, mistress or whatever. So that's, oh, oh, oh. that's at least that's what wait, wait, don't tell me said. I, I don't, I'm not quite sure that's true. I wouldn't know. Okay. Um, let's see. So we're going to talk about poems on this podcast. If you want to get all of them, subscribe to Essential Evidence Plus. Go to EssentialEvidencePlus.com and check it out. We also have a great primary care reference with over 800 chapters and thousands of calculators. The opinions expressed on primary care update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. For a nominal annual fee, you can get CME credit from the IAFP. Uh, go to IAFP.com and click on their education webpage. This week, unfortunately, Gary, if you might have noticed, is absent due to internet difficulties in the great state of Florida. Uh, pharmacotherapy, so we're going to talk about pharmacotherapy for alcohol use disorder, using opioids in adults with cancer pain who also use non-medical stimulants, and brexaprazole, a new drug to me, for agitation in Alzheimer's disease. Kate, start us off, please. Will do. So I have a study today where the investigators looked through multiple databases to find studies of adults ages 18 years or older that evaluated the efficacy of pharmacotherapy for alcohol use disorders. Eligible studies included RCTs comparing an active therapy for at least 12 weeks with either placebo or another medication in an outpatient setting. They found a total of 156 articles that described the results of 118 RCTs that included more than 20,000 patients. They looked at various pharmacotherapies, included or, including oral and injectable naltrexone, disulfiram, acamprosate, baclofen, topiramate, among others. Of these, 37 were new since they did a previous systematic review 10 years ago. So this is an update of a previously done trial. I do have some results to share in a second, but some definitions first. So return to any drinking is pretty straightforward, as is fewer overall drinking days. Return to heavy drinking was defined as at least four drinks on a single occasion for women and at least five for men. In the harm reduction model of care, as many of us know, complete abstinence from alcohol is not always the goal, or it may be the goal, but we will also accept any substantial reduction, particularly in heavy drinking, because that is likely to confer a health benefit. They also looked at adver- at uh, sorry health outcomes, positive health outcomes, like car accidents, personal accidents, and personal injuries, and mortality, as well as adverse events uh, from the medications. So overall, the strength of evidence best supported acamprosate and oral naltrexone at a dose of 50 milligrams a day for reducing the return to any drinking, number needed to treat of 11 for acamprosate, 18 for oral naltrexone. Oral naltrexone was also associated with a significantly reduced risk of return to heavy drinking with a number needed to treat of 11. Interestingly, injectable naltrexone was not associated with lower rates of return to any drinking or heavy drinking but was more effective than placebo in reducing the overall number of drinking days and heavy drinking days. 
Acamprosate was not significantly better than placebo for reducing the risk of return to heavy drinking, and summary evidence didn't support any benefit of disulfiram or gabapentin compared with placebo. Topiramate was kind of shaky as baclofen was not uh, particularly supported by any kind of uh, really high quality evidence. There are adverse effects associated with many of these medications. So for acamprosate, GI effects, for naltrexone, anxiety and dizziness. Uh, None of the trials, I mentioned some patient-oriented outcomes, none of them found any evidence that these pharmacotherapies could affect uh, quality of life, motor vehicle accidents or injuries or mortality. They did look for publication bias, didn't find any. It's worth noting that these are all underutilized medications and can be started safely in the outpatient setting. As a reminder, briefly, naltrexone can't be used in people with liver disease, although acamprosate can. Acamprosate does require a couple of days of abstinence prior to starting. And of course, they're all most effective when used with uh, some kind of psychosocial support around the patient. Uh, Henry, what do you think? Yeah, so I, I think there's some really good things that are in this study and that are kind of not directly assessed by them. Um, The big one being, though, again, four important words. We can do this. We family physicians, um, primary care clinicians, we can do this as long as we are coordinating with all of the other support services that are out there, whether it's Alcoholics Anonymous or any other programs, it's got to be coordinated. There are three FDA-approved drugs for treating alcohol use disorders, and they are disulfiram, acamposate, and naltrexone. So the, the three that have been most heavily studied, you've you, you picked up on. Kind of buried in their figures were some data on heterogeneity, and there is kind of some messiness in the data, especially around acamposate for any drinking. This, the I squared was 78%, which is you know, quite a, quite a bit of uh, heterogeneity in that. Regardless, having numbers needed to treat less than 20, uh, this is, this is pretty good stuff. Now, a couple of years ago in our courses, we had a discussion around opioid use disorders. And one of the abstracts that we looked at had to do with treating alcohol, uh, opioid use disorders in primary care settings. And the data, the systematic reviews show that we have better outcomes, we have longer um, duration of active treatment. And so this really translates very nicely into potentially our role for managing patients with alcohol use disorders as well. Yeah, Henry, I don't have a lot to add to that. I mean, I did want to point out for, you know, the, I thought it was interesting, the injectable uh, naltrexone didn't seem to work as well as the oral. I think it may have just been less studied and maybe there were some mm. less, fewer studies and kind of a sample size issue. But, you know, I guess oral is preferable anyway. Um, for, for listeners who don't do the generic thing as much, Camprol is the acamprosate. That's the trade name for that. And I, I agree. I think that's one of the main takeaways for me from this article is making me think about how I have also throughout my career underused these uh, remedies and these these uh, interventions. And I think, you know, a, a lot of us are probably guilty of not being as um, thoughtful about using these, or I don't know, you want to use the term aggressive, but in, in thinking about these more often for more of our patients. So, uh, you know, part of that's an identification issue in terms of identifying who might need them. But uh, yeah, it's a good reminder that these but, are out there and yeah. they're effective. 
some of it's also our early toilet training. I mean, our, we're, we, we aren't trained. We weren't trained during our medical school or residency back in the dark ages into using these things. And an awful lot of what we do currently is heavily dependent on what we were taught and modeled way back when. So maybe we can change this with a few motivated individuals, slightly different role models. I think we can change that tide. Yeah, and I think that also speaks to generational change, I think, in, in terms of education. I do think this is more part of the curriculum now, much more so than when I was going through training. Kate, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, indoor plumbing nearly every medical school nowadays. <laughs> Henry did begin his career in Cabin Creek, West Virginia, I just want to point out. So the whole plumbing thing is kind of a sensitive issue for him. Yeah, no, I, I do think that there's more, definitely more training about the uh, sort of models of, of alcohol use disorder and other substance use disorders um, that include uh, medication therapy in addition to, to psychosocial yeah. support and less of sort of like this is a personal failing on the part of the patient um, that, that the patient alone must cure. I think it's helpful. Okay. Thank you. That was a great study. Appreciate it, Kate. And uh, I'm going to give you the quiz. The new cardiovascular risk equations from the American Heart Association just released in the past few months. Add which of the following as an optional risk factor to help refine predictions on top of the usual risk factors? The options are zip code, ankle brachial index, carotid intima thickness, the old standby apolipoprotein A, and coronary CT score. Stay tuned. Henry, you're up next. Opioids. Thank you. This is a guideline that was published late December in the journal Cancer by Jones and colleagues. It's uh, it was founded by the American Cancer, funded by the American Cancer Society, uh, and it tried to address how should clinicians manage those patients. You know, patients with cancer pain have unique challenges, but there's a subset of those who also use non-medical stimulants, cocaine, methamphetamine, things of that nature. So they convened a panel to try to give us some guidance with regards to how should we go about managing these individuals. Now, this is a classic bog sat a bunch of old guys sitting around talking. But in this case, it was mostly girls because two-thirds of the panel were women. Um, virtually all of them were physicians. So they didn't, they didn't really do an evidence base. They didn't really address conflict of interest or do all of the modern guideline kinds of things. Uh, nonetheless, there's some interesting um, perspectives on this. So they, they did what were called modified Delphi techniques, where they start off with the groups and they address some broad issues, and then they come back later on with some refined discussion topics, and then eventually they get to their bottom line. They broke the groups up into two uh, the, the panel into two groups. One group addressed patients with advanced cancer who had a short prognosis, weeks to months, and the other uh, group addressed patients with advanced cancer who had a longer prognosis, months to maybe years. Now, they defined advanced cancer as being metastatic, non-curable, or not controlled, okay? So what did they find? Well, they basically said that, you know, we should continue using um, opioids for pain control in this group of individuals, regardless of the prognosis. Okay. So if you've got a patient with cancer pain, treat the pain. Um, for those who had um, the more favorable prognoses, they, they said, you know, 
go ahead and continue the opioids as long as the stimulant use was not an ongoing issue. In other words, we should monitor and keep track of them. They didn't really say whether we would just stop the opioids if they continued. They basically said that we should be doing some other kinds of things, such as um, not changing over to buprenorphine naloxone, which is, uh, I think that's suboxone. Um, they weren't really sure about using that for those individuals with the longer prognosis, though. Okay, so that might be an option for those who are continuing to use it. They also recommended counseling patients about the harms of stimulants, like that always works, right? And then they basically said, let's think about transitioning over to buprenorphine for the management of pain with those patients with persistent misuse, not as a treatment for addiction, which it can be used for, but as a safer alternative to traditional opioids for pain management. To me, the most refreshing part of all of this was that these are individuals who are challenging, but we can't ignore the fact that these are patients who have significant pain and reduced prognoses. Mark. Yeah, not much to add here. Um, and I just, I, I was, when I read this initially, I was thinking, how often does this happen? Is this common to see patients who are also taking stimulants along with opioids for pain control? And, and this was cancer related pain. Is, is that a common thing? I think it depends on your setting. Kate, any, uh, any final comments on this one? The it's a it's a good example of uh, what primary care is good at, which is the idea that people develop things like incurable cancer um, while they already have other medical conditions underlying. So, for example, a stimulant use disorder, um, and that you you have to take care of the whole patient at the same time. That one condition doesn't just replace or overlie the other. Um, you've got like a whole a whole person to take care of. Um, and it would have been um, interesting to see if there were primary care clinicians or, or family physicians who were part of this guideline panel um, to sort of provide that perspective. And a shame if there weren't. Um, it's also interesting because I think this this is probably more in line with the more recent uh, CDC recommendations about how to consider the use of long-term opioids, although I think possibly that one was specific to, to chronic non-cancer pain. Um, but again, just sort of reflecting that uh, there are certain harms associated with with withholding medications, particularly in this case where you have a, a limited life expectancy, or even if that's several years down the road, you have somebody who um, who does have you know a, a potentially long term pain condition um, where, where opioids might be the most indicated or the most reasonable um, medication. And again, sort of taking that that sort of holistic look at um, at, at what that patient's specific risks and benefits are. Thanks, Kate. Appreciate it. And thank you, Henry. So the last study is mine, and that's uh, Brex. It's from the uh, JAMA Neurology, uh, Brex, oh God, Brex Piprazole, Brex Piprazole. I'm going to have to say that three times. For the treatment of agitation and Alzheimer's dementia, a randomized clinical trial. So this is a, a fairly common problem, having cared for many patients and including family members with Alzheimer's, you know, up close you know, that kind of agitation is not uncommon. So this was an industry-funded multinational study, and the researchers randomly assigned about 340 adults who had Alzheimer's disease and who had agitated behaviors to either brexpiprazole, 2 milligrams or 3 milligrams daily, or placebo for 12 weeks in a 2 to 1 ratio. Every two weeks, the researchers evaluated the scores on various validated measures of agitation, as well as global assessments of how they're doing. About 87% of the 
of the patients completed the study, which is good. The average age was 74 years, a little over half were women. At the end of the study, the Brex-Piprazole-treated patients had a greater reduction in agitation scores than those who got placebo. The effect size, which is something we've mentioned before, was 0.35. And an effect size of 0.2 is a small benefit. 0.5 is a moderate benefit, and 0.8 is a large benefit. So this is kind of in the small to medium range. They also had a similar effect size for the global assessment. Uh, again, a small to medium effect size of 0.31. Discontinuing medication due to adverse effects was due to adverse effects was similar in the two groups, uh, 4.3 versus 5.3 percent. Now, in a clinical trial, you you may have fewer people leaving because they are part of a trial and they may stick it out more, although, or the family members may be uh, encouraging that. But in in any case, pretty low, particularly for a drug in this category. Uh, Bottom line, in this industry-funded study of patients with Alzheimer's and agitation, Brexpiprazole modestly reduced agitation scores and seemed to be pretty well tolerated. Kate, what do you think? Yeah, these patients seem a little on the young side. 74, um, and feel like that's a little bit on the low side for percentage Mm -hmm. uh, female compared to sort of the national population of patients that I think of as being affected by Alzheimer's. Uh, This is, I think, one where it's useful to have something in the toolbox, yet another thing in the toolbox, uh, because Mm -hmm. nothing works that well. I think we've looked at some other studies before that were sort of big systematic reviews of um, medications and and other therapies for the cognitive symptoms of of dementia. Um, And the the sort of summary was nothing works that great. Um, And they've looked at, you know, sort of all these interventions across the board. And I would say that this falls right into that category of you know, if, if you prescribe it to somebody and they come back and they say, it's, you know, mom's still kind of agitated, you just wouldn't be that surprised. Um, and you'd have something else, ideally, in your toolbox, ready to go. Ideally. Henry? Yeah, so <clears throat> they they calculated these uh, mean differences largely because they had s- such a wide variety of scales. And, and so we don't know what is the minimum clinically important difference that, you know, a a change in a score that a caregiver might notice. Um, The the second part is, Kate, you know, the average age was 74, but my bet is that these were were individuals who probably had five or more years with their diagnoses. And so the agitated behavior is probably typical for those who have late duration um, Alzheimer's disease. The other thing that I point that I want to make is that we've talked about dementia and agitated behaviors in our courses. And this notion of pharmacologic therapy has largely been a dismal failure that non-pharmacologic measures, orienting kinds of tools, soft music, appropriate kinds of lighting, um, All of those kinds of things are at least as effective and certainly a whole lot less noxious than medications. Good point. And um, thank you for that, for those comments. Um, Time for the quiz answer. So remember the question was the new cardiovascular risk equations from the AHA, which are called the PREDICT score, add which of the following is an optional risk factor? Zip code, the ABI ankle brachial index, carotid enema thickness, apolipoprotein A, or the coronary CT score. So these new equations, the older equations were criticized correctly 
for using older data when people didn't control risk factors as well, had worse cardiovascular outcomes. And so they tended to overestimate risk. And so ended up, we ended up putting a lot of people on statins or starting uh, aspirin or whatever, because we thought their risk was higher than it actually was. These predict equations are supposed to try to correct that. They're using more contemporary US data to develop their models. They also build in more in terms of uh, renal risk factors, and they make 10 and 30 year predictions instead of just 10 year, at least for people up to age 59. Once you hit 60, I guess they assume you're unlikely to really need a 30 year prediction. Um, Fine. The the core um, risk factor assessment uses things like blood pressure and lipids, HDL and total cholesterol, age, sex, comorbidities, uh, tobacco use, you know, all the usual things we're used to, but the models are different. And so the predictions are somewhat different. The interesting thing I thought was the optional risk factor. So they add three. They had the urinary albumin, uh, urinary albumin to creatinine ratio, UACR, the hemoglobin A1C, and zip code. And when I did my risk assessment, I had a 10-year cardiovascular event risk. Remember, these are predicting the likelihood of an event, not death, fortunately. So the risk of a, the likelihood of a cardiovascular <laughs> event is seven and a half percent. It was man, I'm glad it's just some event. Um, but I added my zip code, which is three hundred six hundred one here in Athens, Georgia, and it went from seven and a half percent to six percent. I, I haven't tried this yet, but I'm gonna. I should try. Well, this is a, an urban, uh, well-to-do college community, and so that may have something to do with why my risk went down. I bet if I entered my rural Michigan. Uh, zip code up at the lake. I wonder if it goes up. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe I guess I'll know where I'm more likely to have my heart attack. Um, so anyway, interesting risk scores. I think they they are trying hard. They put a lot of effort into developing more accurate risk prediction models, which will hopefully help us do a better job of targeting statins and other preventive efforts. Henry, you got a comment on that? Yeah, I, I think this is also an attempt to add a sociodemographic factor yeah. into mm-hmm. this. And I think there's at least a European uh, risk prediction model that does the same kind of thing. So I think that's really what they're trying to get at. The big fallacy being that I live here now, but where did I spend most of my life? And is that more predictive than where I live currently? Yeah, I mean, the, the I think the Europeans, particularly the English, do a better job of quantifying what they call the social deprivation index, and they um, have better data. And so their risk scores, I think, do a better job. But at least we're trying and starting to think about those things, which, you know, as I think, as we all know, your, your zip code is probably your, one of the better predictors of how long you're going to live, um, all told, not just cardiovascular. So good stuff. Um, we got a point of care guide in American Family Physician that I just wrote up on the Prevent Score. So you'll see that in an upcoming issue of American Family Physician. Thanks for listening today. Again, CME credit, go to IAFP.com. Um, I hope you enjoyed today's discussion of our three studies. Tell your friends. We'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates.